0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. All right, we're going to jump right into Mark chapter 2 because it is, I think, one of the most important chapters in your Bible. There's so much for us to get into. Um, For that reason, we need some help this morning. So let me just pray for us as we jump in. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together as people who love one another, um, people who you've called together to be family, and we get the opportunity to open your word, which brings life and light and truth. We thank you. This is such a privilege. Please speak now. We know that you will. May we hear and respond in Jesus' name. Amen. When I said we're going to jump right in, I mean it. Literally, we're going to jump right in. So grab, make sure you've got that Bible in front of you. Um, there will be on the screen as well if you want to follow along that way. We're going to get into the first two verses of Mark chapter 2. This is what it says. He, that's Jesus, went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Uh, beg your pardon. That's not verse 1 of chapter 2. Believe it or not, I've done this before, like a couple of times. So we're going to get into Mark chapter 2, chapter 2 of Mark, uh, chapter 2 of Mark, right now, chapter 2, verse 1, when he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. I want to stop there. At least for me, that was very meaningful to read that this morning. Jesus was speaking the word to them. Like this, for me at least, um, this is so important to me that Jesus valued preaching, Jesus valued teaching. Um, in fact, if you go back to verse 38, uh, which is where I false started, uh, it says, He said to them, He said to His disciples, He said to those who were listening, Let's go on to neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. And then he went into all of Galilee preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. Preaching was was a a thing that Jesus felt called to. Uh, This is why I have come in order to preach to these people, to speak the good news to these people, to to enlighten them, to to open the eyes of their hearts to who God really is and what he's like and what he's calling them to do and to do that by means of speaking truth to them. There was this really definite time a few years ago where I was sitting down with a a coach of mine and he was talking about the necessity for leaders to have that one thing, that drives them, that one thing that when, when everything else is falling apart and you're doubting your calling and, 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 and the fruit doesn't seem to be bearing, right? there needs to be one thing that, you, that you're passionate about that keeps you going. And I said to him and thought for the first time, maybe for me that's preaching. Maybe that's the thing that God is calling me to do. And I've felt that way ever since. And so when I hear that that's how Jesus felt, This is why I have come. It really (laughs) encourages me. I can see now in in hindsight how he's sort of been... Been shaping me for this, and and I hope I'm not sort of indulging myself speaking like this, but but really the point of it is is to ask for you to ask the question: How has God been doing this in my life? What has He been shaping me to do? What is He calling me to do? And for me, I can see like in primary school, we had this weird primary school out in Diamond Creek. There was a. A handful of people that went to it the principal was a bit different he wrote his own math mathematics curriculum you couldn't get away with that today right everything's standardized he had his own thing he he's he required all primary school students to participate every week in something called speech club where you had to get up and speak to your peers and debate and to present and so I had this kind of formation from an early age that was a little bit peculiar and I found myself kind of warming to it and and and, and I've always felt this weird thing like I would way rather speak to a thousand people than to ten. If you get me after the service and I'm in a small group, you kind of watch me getting a little nervous about like, how, how do I do this again? This is why Phil runs the small group ministry and not me. Because me in a room with ten people isn't a great combination but me with a thousand, it's like I love it. And and. And I had this experience like as a 19-year-old newly converted kid where they, they asked me at my church, the, the, the young adults ministry asked me to preach at their gathering on a Wednesday night. Um, it was back when churches were famous for their bad acronyms. This was COW. We had COW, community on Wednesdays. Don't like... i just like to apologize... We had this thing and they asked me to preach and I turned up on the Wednesday night completely having forgotten that they had asked me to preach until in the service, the church service, they said, now John is going to come and, and preach for us. And I was like, what? What now? And, and I turned to the girl who had asked me to do it and said, I don't know, what, I've got nothing. And she immediately started crying. So then I had that on my conscience as well. And then I got up and I just remembered the night before I was dating Renee at the time, I, uh we had been sitting in her court and it started pouring down with rain and thunder. And it was just this cataclysmic, cosmic experience of God in nature. And I started talking about that and and something happened. Like something came out of nothing. Um, just a reinforcing of that idea that maybe, maybe this, is, this is what God is calling me to do. And then I got really jaded about preaching because I worked at a church before I came here for a few years where it was so much about preaching that people would come for the sermon and then leave afterwards. And it was, it was just about hearing the, the message. And so I started searching for other kinds of things to do and, and felt quite jaded about it. And then I accepted a job in Cottesloe in Perth, this beautiful place, told you the story. And I was really looking forward to it, but I wasn't going to be doing any preaching, like almost none. And that was the one chink in, in, in the whole thing. And then we sat down providentially with John and Suzanne as I was having interviewed for this job and refusing, refusing the call to come here. And I will always remember sitting at their house in this unexpected meeting and her saying to me, what we need here is someone to come and preach The word. That's what we need. That's what Caroline Springs need more than anything. And it just hit me like a train, like 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 a calling, like a like a like God grabbing a hold of me. And Renee as well. We both felt it. So the question is According to Jesus, this is a big part of his calling. He's, he's here to preach. He's here to, to teach. He's here to share the word of God with people, to share the good news of the gospel, which is breaking into human history with him, with his coming. And I'm saying I kind of feel a little bit the same as he does. Uh, the question for you is, what are you feeling? doesn't have to be preaching. Very few people are going to have that sense of calling for that very specific purpose. But what's what's God been wiring you for? If you fill out one of our cards that's that's uh sign up to serve on a team, the question we ask you is not how can you fill these gaps, but what are your passions? What has God equipped you to do? Another way of saying it is what annoys you about our church? What are you like? I could do a better job than that because we want to know so that you can do a better job than that. So these are ways of figuring out what has God called me to do. Jesus knew it and it drove him. If you're feeling like you're drifting rather than being driven, you need to figure out what has God called you to do. What's that one thing that energizes you and passions you? And so as Jesus preaches, what I love about his preaching ministry is that it's both words and works. It's not this distant academic lecturing like, all right, got through my notes, now I'm moving on to the next town. It's, it's words and works. There is power as he preaches. So again, in, in the first chapter we saw last week in 38 and 39, he goes about preaching Verse 39, he went into all Galilee preaching in their synagogues, yes, but also driving out demons, right? There's, there's words and works going together all of the time and that's exactly what's going to happen in this little passage we're looking at this morning. So check out verse 1 to 5. When he entered Capernaum again, after some days it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic Carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So I just want you to imagine this scene. Like, just put yourself in this situation. You're in a first century house. There's not a lot of room. There's not a lot of light, right? There's not, there isn't glass to begin with. There's not a lot of windows. And then it's packed full of people. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a CBD tram, right? It's just, it's just wall-to-wall sweaty people, right, pressed up against each other. Not a lot of light. It's, it's, it's a Middle East, right? It's hot. And everyone's there for one purpose. They're there to hear this man, Jesus do what he's been called to do, do what he was born to do, to speak truth, to preach the gospel. Everyone's there jammed in together. There's no room to the extent that when a bunch of guys want to get at him, the only option they've got is to get up on the roof and to dig through it. So again, roofs for the most part were just made out of compacted dirt. If you're really rich, you could get some tiles, right? But, but it, it's essentially dirt. Good insulation, um, but very easy to get through. All you need to do is do what these guys did and start digging. And so they, 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 they're in the middle of this and you're in the room, sweaty, hot, dark, trying to listen to what Jesus is saying and all of a sudden the, the roof starts breaking up. You're like, we're all going to die. But instead of that, you see a shaft of light come through, and then a bunch of guys lowering their friend through the roof. And Jesus' response is not to say, excuse me, it's, it's my time. I just, I imagine, doesn't say it in the text, but I imagine Jesus seeing them and just smiling. Like, this is great. This is great. This is amazing. He, you see what he says. He, Mark says, he saw their faith in verse 5. He didn't just see a bunch of guys who were desperate to heal their friend. He saw their faith. He didn't see a bunch of guys who were just rolling the dice and hoping something good might come of it. He saw their faith. They believed that they had a date with destiny or a date with deity. And so he sees their faith. I imagine him smiling and he says to them or says to the man himself, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. And as I was reading through that, I just had, the, had the, one of those wait what kind of experiences. Like, huh? And I think everyone in the scene that Mark paints has the same wait what. Like, what just happened? Like, a guy just got lowered through the roof, which is one thing. But then what Jesus says causes everything to stop. Like, if you, if you like old westerns like I do, this is the moment when the guy playing the piano suddenly stops playing the piano, right? So, everything stops. What just happened? A couple of weird things just happened. First of all, a paralytic got lowered through a roof, and Jesus' response to him was to say, your sins are forgiven. Now, on a kind of, if you, if you had to rank the top 10 needs of a paralytic person, sins being forgiven probably isn't up the top. I would think probably being able to walk again would rank in at, at the top. Am I right? I'm losing you guys. Paralytics, they're people who can't walk, right? So list of needs, probably at the top, walking again. And yet Jesus' first thing that he says to him is, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's a weird thing to say in a pretty weird situation. The second reason that the piano stops and the brakes get jammed on is because he just said, son, your sins are forgiven, which means he said, by the way, I'm God. So yeah, he can preach a bit, he's pretty good at healing people, he can drive out demons, but he just cranked it up to 11. He said, I'm God, which is exactly why those who are observing responded the way that they did, right? Verse 6 and 7. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. right? This is one of those points where the scribes, the Pharisees, they're right. He is blaspheming unless he is God. Unless he is God, he's blaspheming. And at probably at best, he's just another one of these huckster snake oil salesmen who's going around doing some tricks. Right? Unless he's God. And so they're right when they say, what is this guy doing? What is he saying? He's out of his mind. He's blaspheming. No one can forgive sins except God. And they're right. Unless he is. He gives them a little hint as to whether he is or isn't in verse 8. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking this within themselves. And said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts?" That's a little hint as to whether he is or isn't, right? Being able to know exactly what someone is thinking in their heart gives you a little hint. But it's just a little hint. And he'll go on to make an emphatic proof in just a second. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, your mat and walk? Which is easier? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? It's easier because you can fake it. Your sins are forgiven. There's no way to prove it. And so it's easier to say that. I can say that to anyone. Your sins are forgiven. Easier in one respect, easier to fake, much harder to do in reality. Why? Only God can do it. So unless you're God, it's impossible. Not easier, but impossible. And so he says, how about I do both then? Just so there's no question. Am I faking this or am I not? I'm going to do both for you. Verse 10 to 12. So that you may know that the Son of Man, there's his favorite title for himself, Read up about it in the series guide if you're confused by it. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in the front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Mark wants you to know really emphatically, and he's going to do it again and again before we get to the end. Remember, he's the master director of this film. He puts scenes together so that we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt the point that he's trying to make. And here, what he's saying to us is that Jesus is God and man. We've got a local group of Jehovah's Witnesses that come around fairly regularly to, to our house, I think they, they think they've got a shot with me. Maybe I'm not coming across very confident or see the bags under my eyes. and like, That pastor's on, a, on the way out. But one of the passages that I take them to more often than, than any other is this one. Remember, JW's deny the deity of Jesus. And so you take them to a passage like this where it's absolutely emphatic what Mark is trying to say. When the scribes accuse him of blasphemy, he doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, no, hang on a second. I don't mean that. He never refutes what is being attributed to him. You'll see throughout Mark, particularly the first eight chapters, he constantly tells people, keep this between us. Because he doesn't want the people to rise up and make him a political messiah. He needs to dampen expectations over and over again. But it's, it's like these people can't help but recognize what's right in front of them. That is, this is God. Mark introduces in the first verse this gospel as the gospel of the of Jesus, the Son of God. In the middle, there's an, an episode where demons call him the Son of God, and then at his resurrection, the centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. There's, there's, there's I mean, you can't get away from it, guys. People have tried. Your JW friends will try, but there's no getting away from the fact that Mark wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is God. That's why the people say We've never seen anything like this. Why? Because God has never come in human flesh and dwelled among his people. So let's move on to the next scene. Remember, this is one film through this chapter, different scenes put together, all to serve the same purpose. So verse 13 to 14. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Echoes of last week's chapter, remember? Jesus goes by the sea again. He sees a bunch of fishermen, and he says, Follow me. They drop their nets, and off they go. And we said last week, It's weird that this happens because boys, Jewish boys, would go to school for 13 years. Up until their 13th birthday, they would learn uh, the Old Testament. And then if they weren't so good at academics, they'd go off and get a trade like fishermen. Uh, and, and, and if they were really good, they would keep studying, keep studying. And then the best, the best students would get picked by the best Rabbis, most respected rabbis get the most respected students. And yet Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, goes to the sea and grabs a bunch of tradies. And I said, this should encourage us, right? God is seeking not just the best of the best, but people like you and me. That was bad enough, getting fishermen, smelly fishermen who weren't very educated to go to a tax collector and say, follow me. Now he's just taking the, the mickey, right? Tax collectors, the most hated people in the culture of the day, the most hated people. Most hated people for us, we probably caught to mind, you know, ch- child molesters, People like that, and I'm sure they were hated in their day as well, but tax collectors, they were like another rung up. Why? Because the Romans were in Israel subjugating the people of God and in their minds preventing the people of God from being the people of God because of their overlordship. What are tax collectors? Tax collectors are Jews who are traitors. They've turned on their own people and now they're serving the Romans and not only serving the Romans but taxing the people and not only taxing the people but taking hand over fist more than even the Romans were asking from them. So taking more than they, than they needed to, lining their own pockets, and every coin they take from the, the, the Jewish people is used by the Romans to oppress the Jewish people. It's like this sick cycle, and these so-called Jews are enabling it. That's why they're the most hated of people. Every time I pass by, uh, this isn't in the script, and maybe I'll have to apologise later. But every time I pass by uh, a speed camera and just see that guy reading the paper and king, 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 getting everyone for going two k's over the limit, I think he's a tax collector—the <laughs> most hated of people, traitors. And yet Jesus goes to Levi, looks at him and says, follow me. That is, be my disciple. Be part of my crew. Learn to be more like me. Be close to me. Follow me. And as if that wasn't bad enough. I mean, we had the fisherman, now we've got the tax collector, and, 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 and then we go from just calling him to actually eating with him. Jesus. Does this table fellowship thing, which we've been talked about in, in one of our values, this the shared table idea. We're gonna have this later with our, our lunch that we have together. We, we have it during the week, encouraging people to have a have an open shared table with one another. This is one of the key parts of Jesus' ministry. If he was a preacher, he was also a foodie, right? He loved opening a table and sitting down with people. The problem with this is that in this culture, whoever you ate with were the people that you cherished most, that you loved most, that you accepted. These were your crew. This was your people. These were your friends. And it says in verse 15, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, in his house, come on. Many tax many tax collectors. I mean maybe he was just a good one, you know, a good one of a bad bunch. No, many tax collectors and sinners. Drug dealers, prostitutes, immigrants, right? (laughs) Tax collectors and sinners, and he was eating with Jesus. They were eating with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who were following him. It just gets worse. Like if Jesus had a PR team, they would just be going crazy. Like you are killing us. We can't spin this in any way to rescue you. So he's, he's eating with all of these tax collectors and sinners and these are the people that he's calling to follow him. Let's pause the film for a second. Remember, Mark is this master director. He's, he's, the, he's Steven Spielberg. He's he's Stanley Kubrick, right? He's, he's, this, he's this, this, this amazing director, and he's put together these different scenes to tell us something very emphatically about. Who Jesus is, that is about who God is. So in verse 1 to 12, which we worked through already, Jesus is God and man. That's the big idea. And in verse 13 to 17, he's saying this is what God is like. If Jesus is God, then look at what Jesus does. This is what God is like. This is what God is like. Verse fifteen to seventeen. When he was reclining at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were, were uh, when the scribes uh, who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, "Why? Why does he eat with tax collectors?" And sinners. When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I was reading through that this past week, and I just put the Bible down and I said out loud on my own in the office down at the end of the hall there, I just said, Praise God. Praise God that he is like this. Praise God that this is what God is like. Because listen, if you know yourself, if you're like me and you know how dark it gets in here. Right? You know you know how dark it gets. You know how much you're prone to wander is prone to wander and wander and wander. And you're prone to wander not just away from God, but into dark places. If you know that fact, then you read what he just said and all you can do is say, thank God. That's what God is like. He didn't come to call the righteous, and I thank God because I'm not one of them. He came to call sinners, of which I am the foremost. Praise God that Jesus, the God-man, says to all those who think that they are self-made men, self-righteous, He says, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's those people that I want. It's those people who I came to seek and to save. Now, if that's true then there is nothing preventing any one of us this morning from saying, I am God's and he is mine. Like there's literally nothing. And then when I say that, for those of you who are listening and there's a couple of you, I can see there's a couple of you, right, who are tuned into this. There are a couple of you who are saying, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You can talk about walking in darkness, but you're professionally religious. You're even wearing a tie this morning. You don't know what I did last night. And the truth is, I don't know what you've done. And the truth is, it doesn't matter. I'm not the one saying everyone is welcome at God's table. He is saying everyone is welcome at God's table. And Jesus is very deliberate about going to the most hated, the most foul person in the culture and having him at his table so that we can't say, yeah, but what about me? He's saying, even if you are the worst, you're welcome at my table. So I just know this for a fact. I know know, I can talk about, oh, yeah, I really feel called to preaching. I know I've got no power... To overcome those chains that bind you, that, 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 that self-made prison that keeps you from reclining at the table with Jesus and eating with him. right? Those chains that say, you don't know what I've done and I'm, I'm too bad and, and God can never give, forgive me. Those chains are powerful and I can't speak loud enough. I can't, I can't break it. But if you truly read what we just read and trust by faith that that's what Jesus said, then the truth is everyone in this room is welcome and that there's nothing that can keep you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So come, come to the table You can can sit down with all the other sinners, with all the other broken people, all the other sick people, to use his language. Just Just join the rest of us. We're all sickos together, and we've got one good physician who welcomes us, and not just welcomes us, but then works to heal us. That's why I put the Bible down and said, Praise God. Praise God for this truth. Now, of course, there is an alternative to running to Jesus' table and reclining with Him and sharing food with Him and have Him look at you and say, Follow me, be with me. There's an alternative to that, and that's to turn away from Him, to harden our hearts, to trust in ourselves, to say, I'm not sick. I need a physician. And for people like that, their way of living, their way of viewing the world is always through the prism, the, 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 the lens of self-righteousness. Self-made, religious, religiosity. It's always through the lens of regulations over relationship. They view God as a lawyer, not as a father, right? And for people like that, this is how they respond. And let this be a warning. Don't do this. Verse 18 to 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why did John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast? but your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken from them, taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day the people of Israel had become so accustomed to seeing their relationship with God in terms of the regulations that they'd formulated for themselves. Not just all of the Old Testament commandments, but like hundreds of more that they'd laid on top. And so they'd been so drilled in obeying commandments that they'd forgotten what it was to live in relationship with God himself. That is to seek God's presence. If you speak to a, a Muslim today, the thing they don't get most about Christianity is that we view God as a relational God. They do not have that in their religion. They say set prayers, they don't, they don't uh, converse. God is distant and He governs all things with an iron fist, and my job is just to do what I'm meant to do. That's how these people had started to think in the first century in in Judaism. It was, these are the ways that I relate to God. It's through regulation. It's through obedience. What Jesus has come to reveal to us is that our primary response to God, yes, though we are desperate to obey him, our primary response to him is to seek him, to be near him, to be in his presence one of the ways that we do that and I, and right so one of yeah one of the ways that we can do that is through fasting fasting not eating for a long period of time is a vehicle that god has given us in order to seek his presence that's what it's fundamentally about it's about seeking god's presence more than anything else more than food which is normally at my, the top of my priority list, more than anything else, I'm seeking you, your presence, Lord. That's why Jesus says, when I'm with these people, they're not going to fast. Why? Because fasting is about seeking God's presence. And who am I? God. They don't need to seek my presence. I'm here. Remember, Mark's putting this all together for one big idea. Jesus is God, And so that's why they don't need to fast. Now, the time's coming where I'm going to be taken from them. That is, I'm going to be slaughtered. Then they're going to fast. I could go on a little rant about why the Western church hasn't heard what Jesus said and from the moment he was taken from them, started fasting again. Like, we've got a long history of not doing any fasting. I was never taught when I became a Christian that I should be fasting. It's only in the the last couple of years that I've started to get deeply into this discipline of fasting and it's absolutely vital to me now. This regular, weekly, disciplined fasting is vital so that I can seek God. And that's exactly what Jesus said. While I'm here, no need to fast. When I'm gone, oh yeah, they'll fast. They're going to need to seek me. They're going to need to seek my presence. That's the first point of this whole thing. Jesus is God. That's the big idea. The fasting thing is just a way of getting that message across. Similar is the last part, all right? So verse 23 to 28, and I don't think I've got time to read it all, okay? But, but you go ahead and read it. It's, it's a similar sort of challenge, not now about fasting, but about the Sabbath. It's the same, same kind of thing, like, how come you're not keeping regulations, Remember, regulations are what mediates relationship. And the whole point of this, those two little episodes of the the fasting and the Sabbath, the whole point is this. The kingdom has come with Jesus, and nothing is going to be the same again. He's going to really emphatically say, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And the way he says it in the last couple of verses, check it out, verse twenty-one to twenty-two. He says, "No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment; otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made." And no one puts new wine into old wine skins; otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wine skins. What he's saying is this: I haven't come to patch up the old covenant. I haven't come and seen a few things that are wrong, like you guys are now obeying six million regulations. right? I haven't come to just patch that up. If I came and patched that up, everything would be made worse. My patch would pull away and the old covenant would be torn apart and I don't want to do that. He says, no, everything is new. I have fulfilled that which is old and now we have a new covenant. The kingdom has come and nothing is ever going to be the same. And what's interesting is the whole, the, the, the product of all of this, this coming, this kingdom bringing, this life of preaching and healing and of casting out demons, this road, this journey to the cross, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the product of all of that is one monumental tearing of an old cloth. Remember? the one tear that Jesus does make in the old cloth is the tearing of the curtain in the temple. That curtain that separated God from dirty sinners like you and me. That was the cloth that was torn. And because of that tearing, every one of us can run to Jesus' table and recline with him, to be with him, to be loved by him, led by him to be with him both now and forever. The question is this morning, are you going to run to him as a sick person in need of a physician or are you going to turn away from him and keep building up your self-righteousness? That's the question. I'm going to pray for us now and I'm believing that everyone in this room this morning is going to run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself today to be a God who loves broken people and actually seeks out sinners, the most hated people, the least righteous people, the dirtiest people, people like me. I praise you and thank you that that's who you are. That's what you're like. And my my simple prayer this morning is that each and every person in this building, children included, would know that love this morning and not only know it, but have the courage to receive it. to allow themselves to be broken out of that self-made prison which keeps them from fellowship with you. Lord God, please, make it irresistible this morning. Make your call to us irresistible, that we might drop our nets and leave our booths and follow you every day, making all of life all about Jesus.